thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Continuing then our study of the book of Exodus, and tonight we are covering chapters 16 through 18. I hope you've had time to read through scripture because, as uh, you know by now, I am not reading the chapters myself. I don't have much time to do so. And tonight we're going to cover fundamentally five points. There are five points I'd like to cover. You can think of them as the five crises in the wilderness. We've seen one of them already, um, which is the bitter waters at Merah. Um, and uh, these are not the five points. I'm just going to give you a little overview, and I'll talk about exactly what I'm going to cover. You can think of the five crises in the wilderness being the bitter water at, uh, uh, waters at Merah, and we've covered that last week. The next one was the need for sufficient quantities of food, which we're going to hit, hit up on today, and that has to do with the manna and the quail. The third is the lack of drinking water again at uh, Refidim, which is known as Massa and Meribah. We'll, 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 we'll deal with that. Then there is invasion of the Amalekites. And then the fifth crisis being maybe the state of Moses' health or the juridical aspect. So fundamentally, these three chapters are showing us that as they move from Egypt into the Promised Land, it isn't all you know, cake and ice cream. It's hard and there are problems from all sides that they need to deal with. Um, and uh, we are going to see how they deal with these problems and how, particularly how God is working through these problems to teach them, his people, about his providence. So, the five points I'd like to, six actually, six, six points I want to make tonight is, number one, there are very clear correspondence between the signs and wonders of Egypt and the signs and wonders we're going to see tonight. And there is a reason for that. I'm going to go through it. The next one, we're going to talk about the quail and the manna. The third is the striking of the rock and the flow of water. So the first is correspondence with the signs and wonders of Egypt. The second, the quail and the manna. The third is the striking of the rock and the flow of water. The fourth is the battle with Amalek and the arms of Moses. Not, not the weapons, I mean his arms, the limbs. And five, uh, Jethro the Midianite, who happens to be his father-in-law. And the last point is um, the organization of the judici judiciary. Five and six being related. Um, one key verb that is used throughout the entire section is the uh, Hebrew verb nasa 
to prove or put to the test. It sort of summarizes the entire the attitude of the Israelites. If you remember, they were if we sort of follow the progression, they were first in Egypt and everything was hunky dory. They were settled in Egypt and they were happy. Goshen is a very fertile land. They were established there. They had their homes. They've been there for 400 years. After 400 years, they were more Egyptian than they were Israelites. The promise that God made to their people, to Abraham, was kind of put on a back burner. Sure, yeah, there is something out there that God promised to somebody named Abraham a long time ago. But in the meantime, we're enjoying Egypt. It's very nice. God then realized, well, he actually realized that when he talked to Abraham. Remember, when he spoke to Abraham, he said, by my name I will make this happen. It means that God put himself under a curse when he said that. I will bring this to completion. And so he is now set about to do it. You know why? Because if he leaves it, he leaves it up to them, well, good luck. Not going to happen. Yeah? And it's the same thing with us. If he leaves our sanctity to us, Good luck with that. It's not going to happen. Right? He's the one who always takes the initiative. So he comes to them, and the very first way in which he comes to them is by taking away from them their toys, the things that really attach. He, the, he makes their life bitter. He makes their life bitter. And the reason of the bitterness is to be able to detach them, to beginning this detachment process from Egypt. Then he sends them, As a result of life being made bitter, they pray. They have nothing else. Now they go back to God, right? And God sends them a Savior who then performs all these signs and wonders in Egypt and then gets them out of Egypt. And as we said last time, that was a no-no for them. Because by the time those signs and wonders were completed in Egypt, what happened to the Egyptians? They were flat on their faces, Egypt became a land of opportunities. Goshen was preserved. Their homes, their land, and everything they owned was intact. Why should we leave? Why don't we go back to Egypt and make it our own? Let me put it to you this way. Uh, Something, let's say, God decides to come in and then uh, wipe out all the Democrats. And as a result, La Jolla is empty. (coughs) All the homes in La Jolla are absolutely intact and they're empty. Okay? And then he comes to the Catholic, the faithful Catholic, and he said, I'm taking you out of here. You're going all to El Centro. We're going to jump for joy, aren't we? If you don't know where El Centro is, by the way, it's the desert. La Jolla is empty. You can go and pick a house. You don't even have to pay for property tax. And God says, I'm taking you to the desert. Now, aren't you happy? With a God like this who needs enemies, do you understand why they have this issue? If you can't feel the pain you don't understand the sin. And if you don't understand the sin, you're not going to see it in your life, and you're not going to ask for the graces to be freed from it. 
when you put it in terms you understand and you can relate to, you're going to say, oh, okay, I, I understand our problem now. Okay, sure, God makes all these signs and wonders, etc., etc., but La Jolla is empty. Why are you taking us to El Centro? Yeah? So, NASA, prove, put to the test. It appears in 1525, 16.4, with God as subject and Israelites as the object of the testing. God is subjecting them to the test. It is the same verb used to describe God's putting Abraham to the test with Isaac. And Nasa is used similarly in the, uh, later on in Exodus 20.20. 20. So God is essentially putting the Israelites to the test. And conversely, the Israelites are grumbling, are murmuring, murmuring against God. Does God put you to the test? Does he put you to the test? How does he put you to the test? Any suggestion? Pardon? Through difficulties, yes. Temptation. Sickness. All these are ways in which God put all of us to the test. But you know what? These are secondary ways in which he puts us to the test. What is the primary way in which God puts us to the test? The primary way in which he puts us to the test against which we will be judged. Okay, more generally than coming Sundays to the church. You're on the right track. Uh, 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 uh. Yes? Believe in what? No. Believe in God is not enough. Why is believe in God not enough? Could you give me an example of somebody who believes in God and who really is not in heaven? Satan. Satan believes in God more than, you, more than you and I. He completely believes in God. Right? That's not enough. What is required? There's something else. Yes, but be, be concrete. Something very concrete. Yes? No. What is required, what is required, is that we must, as the creed says, believe, we believe in one holy, Catholic, apostolic church. And what does that mean when we say we believe in one holy, Catholic, apostolic church? It means that we obey all the teachings of the church. All of the teachings of the church. I'm talking about us now. Good point. I'm not talking about them, although it's connected. But We'll see how it's connected. I'm talking about us. How does God put us to the test? This is how he puts us to the test. By giving us the teachings of the church. That's how we show our mettle. And I've told you that before, and I'll repeat it again. You can come to Mass. You can receive the Eucharist. You can tell God you love Him. You can do all these wonderful things, and you disobey one of the commandments of the church. One. One. Pick anyone you want. One commandment of the church. You will not make it to heaven. Doesn't matter how many rosaries you've said. Doesn't matter how many times you came to the church. Doesn't matter how many times you received. So you're contracepting. Doesn't matter. Do, do you understand that? I really want you to understand that because it's very important. There is a spirit of relativism that has penetrated our culture where we think, hey, I'm a good person. I'll pick and choose. We call this cafeteria Catholics, right? I'll take this one. I'll take that one. But I'll drop this one, right? So you decided, you know what, the church has nothing to do with my bed, I'm in contracept. Uh-uh. You decide, 
you know what? I'm going to divorce and get remarried. Uh Uh-uh. You decide, I'll come to the church on Sundays when I feel like it. Uh Uh-uh. You decide to swear and use the name of the Lord. You decide not to work on your virtues. So you gossip. You spend your time talking about this person, that person, what this one, this, and that, 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 Uh-uh. Ah, who's going to go in? Now at least you're feeling the heat and you understand why Jesus said, go by the narrow. Many, many will, and few will find it. That's why he's very realistic. Why? Because all of us want La Jolla. We don't want El Centro. That's why. Do you understand? That's why he puts us in it. Very simple. Yes, nothing shall be impossible to God. Yes, yes, but that was in a very, that was in a very specific context. The context it does not mean that he, uh, we, he's going to do in a sense. He's going to do the work for us. God gave us the grace. He enables us to do the work, but we have to do it. The letter of Saint James, very explicit. Faith without work, is dead. And the work that we talk about is the work of the church, not my work. So if I'm doing things that the church is not in agree- in agreeable with, if I'm doing... Let me put it to you very, very simply. L- look at it this way. Okay, here we go. The church is your mom, yes? Jesus has one bride, yes? The church is your mom, Yes? Okay, can you please your dad by insulting your mom? Can you please your dad by disobeying your mom? Can you tell your dad, listen, I listen to my mom most of the time, but not always. But I love you very, very much. Who do you think going to end up outside? You or your mom? Do you get it? Is that, this is, that's it. It's family. It's very simple. This is how he puts us to the test. Every word you speak, every action you make, every idle moment you spend, you will have to render account for. Yes? Yes. Okay. With that. Yes. Oh, very good question. Why does God create La Jolla? He wants to send me to El Centro. Very good question. Let's go through this. (laughs) This is it. Why does he create La Jolla? And he sends me. Why bring me down to Egypt? And take me back out. Right? What's up with God? Can't he make up his mind once and for all? Yeah. So first, the correspondence with the signs and wonders in Egypt. We're gonna, we, you will see this is central. It's really a central question to Exodus. So uh, I told you one of the key words was Nasa. Another one is Lun, which is to complain, to grumble, and to murmur. I, and I said, I've already told you, murmur, it doesn't mean I am whispering. Because I want God to hear me. Murmur means a form of rebellion. Right? It's rebellion. Okay. And it occurs in the Old Testament only in the wilderness story of the Bible. Only there do you see this murmuring happen. So it's very specific because this is where we see how God deals with murmuring. And uh, there are numbers of vocabulary parallels between the section of Exodus and the plagues in the earlier section. And here we go. In 724, they could not drink, in 724 in Exodus, they could not drink the bloodied water of the river. 
the Nile turned to blood, they could not drink the water of the river. In 1523, they could not drink the bitter water of Mara. Hmm? In 918 and 922, God rains hail all over Egypt. In 1604, God rains bread all over the Israelite camp. In 1014 and 15, locusts came up and covered all the ground. In 1613, Quail came up and covered the camp. In 720, Moses struck the Nile with his great staff. In 17, 5 and 6, he struck the rock with his staff. There is a complete correspondence of imagery used in both cases. Why do you think this is so? Because God speaks in dual fashion to the world and to the church. To the world, he would use nature, the natural element Earthquakes, tsunamis, all you know, droughts, all of that is the way God speaks to the world. And then he speaks through graces to the church. In every era, when we face a crisis, God speaks to the church and speaks to the world. So he speaks to the church through the encyclicals of the Holy Fathers, through the teaching of the church, through the saints that he raises. The example he says before us, and to the world, he speaks using nature. Why? Because nature is part of the, is the language of the Old Covenant. Because the Old Covenant was fundamentally natural. It wasn't supernatural. It didn't have the sacramental graces that confer eternal life. The New Covenant is supernatural, and therefore God speaks to us supernaturally. Do you understand? And this is what you see here, that correspondence between the two. All right, the quail and the manna. So God, so they're grumbling because they're hungry. And God then responds to Israel's material and spiritual need. He supplies manna and quail and institutes the weekly Sabbath rest day. So he gives them what they need, but wraps it in what they want. They're interested in food. He's interested in the Sabbath. He, He wants to institute the Sabbath as a day of rest, and he wraps it into the manna. Why? Because he told them, you'll go and pick manna six days a week. On the sixth day, you'll pick double portion. You won't pick it on the seventh. You rest. So let's go through this. First, the people complain. They're faced with hardships of life in the wilderness. It's hard. They're not used to it. Lahoya is gone. right? That is Goshen. And now they're in the middle of a place that's completely dry. And they are grumbling. They're grumbling. Remember that when you grumble about the weather here. Oh, it's too cold, or it's too warm, or it's humid, it's this, it's that. Right? Be careful with that. Anyhow. And they say, in, and, um, in, um, in, for instance, in Numbers, we're going to see that in 11.5, they say, We remember the fish that we used to eat free in Egypt. The cucumbers. Did you know the cucumbers in Scripture? The cucumbers. By the way, these are not the English cucumbers. Those things taste like nothing. You want good cucumbers, eat Mediterranean cucumbers. Anyhow. End of the... Okay, Sorry. Couldn't help myself. All right. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. What do they remember? Those things. Okay? It'd be like, you know, people been in San Diego for some time, having to go to El Centro and pass in the desert, and they're sitting there, and they're going, we remember the burritos that we used to eat here. Hmm. That's, God has taken them out, saved their lives, moved them on a spiritual journey, 
take them to heaven, what are they thinking about? The burritos. Now, do you think this is uh, too far-fetched? We are right now in the season of? For the Latin rite. In the Maronite rite, it is the season of the glorious birth, which started earlier. How many people are fasting? I'm, I'm not, not asking you to raise your hands. I'm just asking. How many people have given up food during the season and not stuffing themselves with truffles? Yeah. If you're not fasting right now, <coughs> if you're not taking on fast, which is a wonderful thing for you because it tones down your passions and really helps you build up your virtues, if you're not making an effort to fast right now, right, you're passing on the graces that God wished to give you for the burrito. Now, I have nothing against burritos, don't get me wrong, okay? but compared to fasting, it's nothing. Fasting is where the real food is for your soul. So please, take up fasting. Don't be sissies. There is much grace as God wished to give you when you fast. And don't give me the, oh, okay, I'm going to not eat you know, chocolate between 2 and 3 in the afternoon. All right? Pick up something that scares you and see how God will come and walk with you this walk. And as I, as I told you, if you're healthy and you don't have issues of blood pressure going up and down and all that sort of stuff, midnight to noon, no water, no food, no nothing. Nothing. Midnight to noon, every day. Monday through Saturday, every day. Till Christmas. Nothing will, fasting is addressed specifically to your passions. The purpose of fasting is to help the grace of God reach the passions and tone them down so that they can be controlled. Virtue means what? what when, you, when you grow in virtue, what are you doing? You're disciplining your passions so that the passions may act according to right reason. Meaning, what do we mean by passion? If you're yelling, your kids ask you for something and you yell. You are irritated with your husband. Not you have ever any reason to be irritated with your husband, right? Women, you know, no reason whatsoever. Your husbands are always perfect. Um, men, you are coming tired from home, from work or whatever, and you have to deal with what's going on at home, and you snap. Okay, you can't stand somebody at work. All these emotions, all these passions, are tamed through fasting. You can pray all you want, from morning to evening, and it will not do you any good. Compared to fasting. How do we know that? From the words of our Lord Himself. These things require prayers, yes, and He didn't say lack of chocolate and fasting. Okay? And what He had in mind was the Jewish fast, not the skimpy, wimpy little thing we do here. All right? So please trust in the Lord, be of good courage, and fast and see. The wonders fasting does to your soul. Yes. Pardon? It's very similar to what I just described to you. It was even worse. So I'm not going to go there. It'll depress you. It just... Oh, yes. Lots of no special food. But I'm not going to go there. No, no. There were a lot, of, a lot of things they could not eat. Let's just say, if you do what I just suggested, you'd be doing really well. Right? Yes. Pardon? Yes, you eat after 12. But please, you're not binging, right? No, oh yeah, no dessert. Sorry, forgot to tell you. No dessert. Cut the dessert out all week, right? No sweets. 
Pardon? No, 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 no. I don't trust any of that stuff. You can complicate your life if you want by making a list and being, you know, entering this political negotiation with yourself. I like it really simple, easy, and very cut and dry, black and white. Midnight to noon, don't eat anything. Don't drink. Yeah, that, then you will really start to understand the passion of Jesus Christ. In your flesh, you'll understand it better. So, I don't want to belabor the point. You can sit here and make excuses. I'm not saying you are. I, I am very good at making excuses, right? And I learned by my own excuses that I'm not good at negotiating. So I keep it really simple. Patty? I said it already, twice. I'm repeating it one more time. If you have health issues, please consult a physician, not me. I'm not a good reference for that. If you have blood pressure, if you have uh, hypoglycemia, if you're diabetic, if you have anything that can be affected by the lack of food, Medically, you ought to do something else. If you're pregnant, all these things. But if you aren't, think about it. Yes. Oh, sure, there are plenty. If you want to go this route, then you can say no sweets, no coffee, no soda, no, um, n- nothing that, uh, nothing that um, uh, any plate that you really, really love, you give up, that sort of stuff. Right? Then you have to make a list and track it. And it, it's a little, it's more complicated, but you can do it. Definitely. You need to feel the heat. It has to hurt. Okay, otherwise you're just fooling yourself. Right? Yes. Fast is fast from food. Yes. Yes. Not from chewing gum or from music or from TV or, oh yeah, tone down your TV also. I mean, take your Advent preparation seriously. You're preparing for the coming of Jesus Christ in your heart. So you're emptying your heart for him to fill it. That's what you're doing. You know, it's really funny. You look at brides. What do they do two months before getting married? They have no problem with that, do they? Yeah. But now when it comes to the, to the arrival of the real bride, the true, bride, the true groom, it's just not my day today, the groom is coming, the real one, the one for eternity. Oh, well, I might just give up chewing gum. But I love you, Jesus. I really do. Yeah. Who are we kidding? All right. Enough on the subject. So they have hardships and they remember their food. And they are now all suffering from this because everybody in 1524 is grumbling. And they basically say, we're going to die by the hand of the Lord. Essentially, what they want to say is that we're going to die from natural causes. It's, here's the, the deal. They would rather die in old age, from old age in slavery. They would rather die slaves, but of old age, than to die of a premature death by starvation and freedom. They would rather die slaves in old age than from starvation and free. Translated into the lives of the church... Right? Many are concerned about their life here in er- on earth than their life in heaven. And the way you see that is by the way they would consider the death of their children or what they think the children should be doing. They're concerned about the education and the proper upbringing of the children, which is wonderful and necessary, but seldom will they think about the end state of their kids. Right? 
So that's where we need to lift up our hearts to God and say, help me see it the way you do. Help me love my children the way you do, not the way I want to love them. So God now responds. In Psalm 78, 18 through 22, I recommend you read Psalm 78 when you go home tonight. It's a good psalm to read. 78, 18 through 22, God is incensed at the disbelief and faithlessness of the people. God is not happy. God is not happy when we show that kind of disbelief after He's given us so many graces. Right? So don't think that our attitude, our attitude, our neglect of our spiritual life is uh, something that doesn't affect God. It does. He's given us so much, why are we giving Him back? Are we taking our spiritual life seriously enough so that we may consider what we're giving Him back? And if we're even not able to fast between now and Christmas, what are we giving Him? All right. In the teachings of the Torah, in the teaching of the law, there is something that is expected of us, which is called imitatio dei, imitation of God. Imitation of God, which is already there. For instance, uh, in Leviticus 19.2, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. In the Deuteronomy, it enjoins Israel to walk in God's way. Furthermore, the teachings that says, just as he is compassionate, so be you. Just as he is gracious, so be you. It follows from the present narrative that Israel will be expected to emulate God's qualities of self-restraint in the face of basing gratitude and of solicitous concern for the hungry. Right? Be, Jesus raised it to a whole new level. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We, he expects us to be perfect. So we ought to strive for perfection in all the virtues because this is what He enables us to do. We must perfect ourselves to the best of our abilities. All right. Now, God gives them bread from the sky or heavenly grain or the bread of heroes, the heavenly bread and the bread from heaven. And it's each day that they have to go and collect what is sufficient for the day. Where do we find echo of this? Now you understand the real meaning of give us this day our daily bread. What Jesus had in mind was the manna. Now notice the amazing qualities of the manna. The thing about it is that no matter how much you go out and collect, whether you collect a little or you collect a lot, you end up with the same quantity. So when the Israelites went out to collect the manna, those who collected a little bit and those who collected a lot ended up with the same quantity. If you kept it, it'd go bad. You can keep it. Why do you think he made it so that when you collect a little or you collect a lot, you end up with the same quantity? Well, he, the quantity and quantity, yeah, but he's fundamentally teaching them, you rely on me. I'm going to give you exactly what you need. You will receive exactly what you need. Right? And this is why, for instance, if you receive half of a host or a full host, you're receiving all of the Lord. Yeah? So the Eucharistic echoes are very, very strong. Whether you receive a small piece or a full piece, it's just the Lord. Yeah? Body, soul. Body and blood, soul and divinity. So, that's what they had to do. And um, 
and on the seventh day, they were not supposed to do any work. So therefore, he provided for them for the seventh day. And that is very important because the intent is for them to rest. How's your family life on Sunday? I'm not going to belabor the point. You should know it by now. How is your family life on Sunday? Is it a day of rest? Or is it a day that is so hectic that you are tired from Sunday by the end of Sunday? Are you spending time with the family? Are you discussing what you've heard at church after the sermon? Are you trying to understand what the teaching was? Are you spending a little time together, maybe praying the rosary if you don't pray in every time, to give glory to God? And then are you spending time with the family, a day of rest? Are you doing your laundry on Sunday? Are you washing? Are you doing your cleaning? Are you making others? Are you forcing others to work on Sunday? Are you going to restaurants on Sunday? Are you living in La Jolla? Or are you a pilgrim wanting to go to heaven? What are you? Now, he also gave them quail. The quail was a one-time deal. The interesting thing about it is that these migratory birds of the pheasant family do uh, migrate over Egypt and northern Sinai. And they do that in vast flocks from central Europe to Africa in the autumn and return in the spring. They're small in size and make the long and tiring journey in stages. Flying low and landing exhausted, they're easily captured with, with nets or by hands. And Numbers 11.31-32 gives a vivid description of this process. And the tender meat of the baby quail is regarded as a great delicacy. It requires no oil for cooking and is speedily prepared over a hot flame. He gave them quails to eat, but it was a one-time deal. However, the manna lasted for as long as they were in the desert. So they give them flesh to eat and bread to eat, but the bread overtakes the flesh. The bread is more important because it's a symbol of the bread of life. All right. Now, we've dealt with food. What comes after food? Water. They got their food. They immediately turn around and complain about water. There's no water. So they're grumbling against Moses. And their, 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 their grumbling is growing stronger and more threatening. They even question God's providence. All right? And so what they do is that they're trying and provoking God because they don't believe that God is there to take care of them. However, God, at this point shows that he cares for them, and he instructs Moses to strike a rock. And from that rock, water flowed. Why do you think he instructed Moses to strike a rock? What's the purpose of striking a rock? Okay, to have faith. I agree, yes. My point is, why not a cactus? Or, um, I don't know. Sand. Why the rock? Because, because yes, the, the rock is also, but fundamentally the rock is a name of God. In all of scripture, the rock 
The word sur is only ascribed to God, and you'll find it in the Psalms all over the place. Hmm? With two exceptions. Two exceptions. Abraham is called rock and Peter. Right? But the rock is a name for God. So now it gets really interesting. What is he doing? He's striking God. He's striking God. So now we see the correspondence with the cross. Jesus, God, was struck on the cross and blood and water flowed. Yes? So he's indicating by which means he loves them. He loves them by giving them of himself. The conversation that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman at the well, where there's water, and he tells her, if you knew who is talking to you, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And he didn't mean from the well. He meant from himself. right? He is the source of water. That's why he instructs Moses to strike that rock. Later on, you remember why Moses did not make it in the, in the Holy Land? Why did God punish him? Because the second time they're, they're thirsty, God instructs Moses to speak to the rock. Just by speaking, water will flow. Moses, being fed up with everybody, strikes the rock twice, and that angers God. And because of this, he didn't enter the Holy Land. Why? Because the first time the rock is struck, water flows. The second time, on the altar of the church, the word is spoken and water flows. Do you see that? You see why we say that the Old Testament cannot be understood properly apart from the cross? The cross of Jesus Christ is the source and summit by which we understand Scripture. Right? That's why. And so that's what they do. And this was always remembered as the incident at Massa and Meribah. Massa and Meribah, where they, they essentially put God to the test. And you can see that in Psalms 81, verse 8 particularly, I tested you. He, I mean, God says, I tested you at the waters of Meribah, but also they put God to the test by their attitude. Now, uh, this, is, this is sort of leading up to a major event that's going to happen later when they're going to grumble against God, and God is going to send serpents amongst them, and 20,000, I think 20,000, a significant number of people died from poisoning by snakes that God sent among them. So you can see how God is forbearing, God is patient, God is merciful, but God can say enough is enough. Yeah? Okay. So Massa literally means trial, and Mary by little means quarrel, to have a quarrel with someone. And this double-bared name arises out of the verbs used by Moses in verse 2 and repeated here in verse, uh, in, in, uh, in, a, in a chapter. I forgot what the verse is. I didn't notice. All right. Then we have the battle with Amalek and the arms of Moses. Now, if you read the entire history of the Israelites, you will see that there is a pro protracted cycle of wars between Israel and Amalek. And several references to those wars are recorded in biblical narratives. So in the course of the wilderness wanderings, Amalekites 
and Canaanites jointly inflicted a shattering blow on an Israelite force, as told in Numbers 14, 44 through 55. Amalekites, either as mercenaries of neighboring kingdoms or independently, made devastating incursions into Israel's settlements throughout the period of the judges. It was King Saul who first dealt effectively with the recurring Amalekite menace, and King David who finally confronted the enemy on its home ground and who neutralized, neutralized its war-making capacities. But it wasn't until the day of King Hezekiah, which is 715 to 687 before Christ, that the last surviving Amalekites were destroyed, according to 1 Chronicles 4.43. And in later Jewish uh, literature, Amalek became a synonym for the enemies of Israel. And for instance, uh, Rome was given the code name Amalek. So Amalek represents this enemy of God, and when they are to go to fight the Amalekite, the first battle... Moses, God, uh, Moses goes up on the hill, on the mountain, and stands and lifts up his arms, like so, opens up his arms. And whenever his arms were uplifted, uh, Joshua, Jesus, right, same name, Yeshu, leading the battle, would prevail. But whenever his arms would fall, the Amalekites would prevail. So eventually, there were two who had to support his arms so that finally they win the battle. Why do you think he had to stand with his arms stretched? On the mountain. Exactly. So who won the battle? Moses on the cross. I mean Moses on the mountain, right? Symbolizing Jesus who will win the battle for us. But note, he won the battle. He won the war. We still have to go and do mop-up operations. We have work to do. Bringing me back to my point earlier. It isn't because God conquered all that we have nothing to do. By his victory, he enables each one of us to overcome the enemy. And who is the enemy? Who are we supposed to overcome? There are three. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Three. And in order to overcome the three frontal attacks, you must use the weapons given you. What are these? One. Knowledge of the truth. You must know the truth. The truth of God. You have to know what it is. That's why you study scripture. It helps you understand the truth of God. That's the knowledge of the truth is what will set you free. Jesus said it himself. Follow me. I will lead you to the truth. The truth will set you free. So you must have the knowledge of the truth. You must know it. You must study it. You must teach it to your children. You must pass it on. Number one. Number two. You know the truth. But it doesn't mean you can act on it, because, as St. Paul told us himself, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't want to do what I really want to do. Why? Because the flesh is weak. You have to deal with the flesh. How do you deal effectively with the flesh? So, hold on, what do you mean, by, what, what do you mean when we say the flesh is weak, specifically? We mean this, the flesh is prone to vice. Our natural, our fallen, not natural, our fallen tendency is to vice not to virtue. You can see it in little kids. Little kids left to themselves turn into brats. If you don't discipline children, you're going to get a big problem. Why? Because fallen nature tend to vice. How do you help that? How do you fix that? Discipline. You must discipline so that virtue may be instilled. 
That's one. But you have to control the passions. Because passions going out of control will destroy a person. Will destroy a person. Anyone suffering from an addiction of any sorts can get completely out of control to the point where they're doing things they don't want to do. A gambler will gamble his entire fortune when he doesn't want to do it. But he cannot stop himself. The passion is so strong, it has completely taken... It's almost as if he's possessed by his passions. Right? Drug addict, you know it. Somebody who is completely under the influence of drugs can't help it. He's got to have his fix. It completely controls him. Sexual addiction is by far the hardest to deal with. The hardest. And by some estimates, in the United States today, you have about 131 million people, either addicts or victims of addiction. 131 million. And it all starts when emotions are not controlled. So there are about 28 million adult children of alcoholics. They're not alcoholics themselves, <clears throat> but they suffered at the hand of alcoholic parents. And sex ad- ad- addiction is growing by leaps and bounds because we do not control the addiction. How do you fight that? Fast. Fasting. If fasting is not part of your usual regimen, if you're not fasting on and off across your entire year, you are in danger in the society we live in today. And the third weapon is prayer. Prayer of the heart. Prayer of union with Jesus. You must rely on that. These are three spiritual weapons that you have to use to help you overcome the flesh, the world, and the devil. Moses meets Jethro, the Midianite, who he happens to be his father-in-law. And Jethro hears the, what happened to Moses, and he gives, he, he gives glory to God. The stories are um, put side by side because it really deals with two different people who are non-Israelites. The Amalekites on the one hand, and the Midianites on the other. Both are non-Israelites, but their reaction to the way God has blessed Israel is vastly different. One seeks to destroy, the other gives praise. And there is no hint of jealousy or envy in the word of Jethro. He's just giving glory to God. He's edified, he is edified, and he recognizes that God is indeed the greatest of all gods. And he offers sacrifice to God. So this hints, this is already a hint that God is not only intent on saving the Israelites. His intention is universal. It goes beyond Israel to all nations. This is a very important hint that must not be missed. Now, what is very interesting in this whole story is that the... um, so, so, so Jethro is sitting with Moses, and then he sees Moses sitting on a, on a chair and people lining up. And he goes, what are you doing? He says, well, people are coming with their problems, and I'm going to judge to figure out who's right and who's wrong. I mean, you have people who have issues, and they're coming to Moses. And Jethro tells him, you know, you're out of your mind. Well, he didn't say it this way. 
But he's saying, what you're doing is not right. You cannot take care of all of this all by yourself. Appoint men who are wise, who are experienced, and who are unbiased, and let them be the judges and have recourse to you for the most important cases. So effectively, the establishment of the judiciary in Israel is the work of a Midianite priest. So, notice, God used somebody who is not from the people, the household of God, to perform a great service to the household of God. And today, great service may be performed to Christians, to Catholics, from people who are non-Catholics. Because this is how God takes care of His household. And so the whole establishment of this judiciary system is due to a man who is not an Israelite. The interesting thing is that later on, the relationship between Israel, Israel and the Midianite was not very pleasant. They were not, it wasn't an amicable relationship. So, despite the fact that later on there was enmity, Scripture faithfully record the major contribution of the Midianites to an essential aspect of the legal system in Israel. Without without trying to cover it up or um, steal it. Scripture gives credit where credit is due. Scripture gives credit where credit is due. And in all things that we do, we must always give credit where credit is due. And not try to steal it for ourselves. Pretend that we did something that somebody else did. Okay? This is a very important thing that we have, we have to be careful with. One thing he says is, Blessed be the Lord. And Jethro, the Midianite, invokes Yahweh. Blessed be Yahweh. Right? He uses the name of the Lord. So he knows the name of the Lord. Right? And then he says, now I know. Meaning that he understands now how God is greater than anyone else. By hearing the account, that man comes to know the Lord. And this is why we have so many stories of the saints. Because when we share those stories, it edifies others, it touches their hearts, and they change. Someone about two days ago told me that there's this couple who were atheists, but they went to Paris, and they went to see the body, the incorrupt body of St. Catherine Labouet. And they were just floored. They were so amazed, they sat there and went through two masses, back to back. and just wouldn't leave. Because they were just amazed to see this. And so they took miraculous medals, and now they, they, carry it on, they, 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 they carry the miraculous medal on them, simply because of that um, um, incorrupt body. Now, they're not at a point where they have faith yet, because they have not declared themselves to be Catholic. They are amazed by the work of the Lord. And hopefully, that seed will take root and will turn into, grow into faith. Right? And then, as a result of this, he basically offers sacrifice. Now, the two sacrifices initially, which are the burnt offerings, and, and then the burnt offering, the, the, the two sacrifices which fall, fall under the burnt offering. One is the ola, which is essentially completely consumed and therefore rises up. This is a sacrifice that you give to God and you do not partake in it. It's, com- it's a complete sacrifice um, that you might also call a holocaust. Right? It's a complete sacrifice. Everything is burnt. Everything is given to God. And the second one is effectively the ziva, where, 
which is only partially offered up, the major portion being eaten at a festive meal. Right? At the festive meal. So you bring a portion to God, and then the rest is shared among those who are present. And in, he, in his case, he offers a burnt offering to God as a, a thanksgiving for what he has done. And then we go through this whole process where the uh, judiciary, the judges are appointed. Uh, you, you need to understand that there's this relationship between the book of Exodus and the book of Judges that comes after Joshua. The reason why Israel, Israel for a long time was governed by judges goes all the way back to Moses and the institution of the judiciary system. Right? And it goes back to mid, um, uh, Jethro who essentially established it. It's decentralized to a certain extent and uh, delegated. And Moses acts as a supreme judicial authority. The key here is that he is acting as a supreme judicial authority because he has access to God. Right? And so when we consider our own judiciary system now, Let me quote to you from this. Exodus 18, 21, 25. Moses is charging the judges. Hear out, you fellow men, and decide justly between any man and a fellow Israelite or a stranger. You shall not be partial in judgment. Hear out, low and high alike. Fear no man, for judgment is God's. And again, in the second book of Chronicles, chapter 19, verse 5 through 8, Consider what you're doing, for you judge not on behalf of man, but on behalf of the Lord. And He is with you when you pass judgment. Now, let the dread of the Lord be upon you. Act with care, for there is no injustice or favoritism or bribe-taking with the Lord our God. When the system is, when the judiciary system is uprooted from its divine source, when it becomes only up to men to decide to be judges, you get what? Tyranny. You have the tyranny of the judges. When you go to court, and I told you that many times, you see people putting their hands on the Bible and they raise their hand and they say, I swear to say the truth, nothing by the truth. Right. And the part that we drop these days, which we didn't use to drop before, is, so help me God, or I'll be damned. Or I'll be damned. So help me God, or I'll be damned. I, I swear, what is that? Promise, swear, I forget the word now, to say the truth. I swear. Is that, is that what we say? I solemnly swear. To say the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God, or I'll be damned. Why are we saying, or I'll be damned? What's, why? Because if I lie, I'll be damned. Now, why do I put my book on the, why, why, why do I put my hand on the, on the Bible? Because I'm effectively saying, if I'm saying the truth, and you think I'm lying, may all the blessings in this book come upon me. That's the, so help me God part. I'm invoking all the blessings that God gave to us in Scripture upon my head because I'm saying the truth. But if I'm lying, what am I invoking? All the curses recorded in the Bible. 
upon me. Now, when you have people who, who have the fear of God in them and understand the covenant and understand that this court is actually the court of God, you have a judiciary system that will be far more efficient, far more effective, I mean, than when you have a system that rely only on the goodness of men, particularly when you live in a country where you have about 131 million people whose, uh, whose passions are completely out of control. How could you expect justice? So Moses does not function as a lawgiver, but, adju- but as an adjudicator. He operates by known rules, the laws and teachings of God. And doubtless, in practice, the interpretation of the law in a specific situation creates a precedent that then becomes the basis for future adjudication. So, in this study, we've seen a glimpse, a glimpse of the the lives of the Israelites during the Exodus, where they essentially lacked food and God, God provided, even though they were ingracious in the way they asked. They lacked water, and God provided, even though they were ingracious. They were not gracious in the way they asked. They needed justice, and God provided. God provided. Just as God provides us for our needs when we are faithful to Him, and we courageously trust in His Word, and we trust that what He says will come to pass. We live by faith. Faith informed by grace. It isn't faith alone. It is faith informed by grace that allows us to do the work of God. So in this beginning of the season of Advent, take the time to contemplate the meaning of Advent. What are you waiting for for Christmas? What are your hopes? What do you need? What do you want? Do you know that? What are you doing to improve your life? In the spiritual sense. Are your priorities where they need to be? Is your heart where it needs to be? Or are you just busy, 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 busy? Take the time to reflect. Spend time in prayer. And if you've done something that is against the teachings of the church, now is the time to correct it. And trust in God, because God is neither deceived nor deceives. God bless you. We'll take a, we'll say a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll move on to take questions. And those of you who need to be on your way, may God be with you. Please stand. All right, questions. Yes. Oh, do we know what happens to Moses' wife? Yes, actually, in these chapters, I think even chapter seven, 17, uh, when Jethro comes, he comes with his wife and his two children. Apparently, Moses had sent them back when he was in Egypt. To, his, uh, to her father, and then he brings his wife and his two children to him at that point. Yeah. Phew, that was easy. Yes. Okay. So you mean when something happens, I suppose you're thinking about um, an event that you would characterize as either bad or evil. Yeah. So there, there's a, uh, it's a fairly simple, there's a very simple answer I'm going to give you. There is what we call the uh, proximate cause and the ultimate cause. 
the proximate cause may be because of somebody else's deed, being acting in an evil fashion, or the devil. The ultimate cause is always from God. Okay? And fundamentally what happens is that uh, God will utilize that action to bring good out of it because he can. And because everything will give glory to God in the end. Even that which seems evil right now. Remember, the only evil we really have to worry about, the one and only evil we have to worry about is hell. That's the only one that counts. Everything else is passing. Yeah? The only way we can go to hell is through our own actions. Yes? Actions. The devil can't send us to hell. You understand that? The devil has no power to send us to hell. He can whisper, he can tempt us. At the end of the day, it is our actions, what we do or fail to do, that will determine our eternal destiny. Yeah? So, therefore, all these evils are temporary. They're temporal evils. The only one we really have to worry about is the eternal one. Make sense? Yes. Oh, no, no, no. That's not how they view it. God is on our side. Let's go back. God is with us. In fact, they demonstrated that attitude when they were in Jerusalem. Listen to what I'm saying. In, in Jerusalem, they demonstrated that attitude. God is with us. Nothing's going to ever happen to us. And they stoned Isaiah when, they told, when he told them Jerusalem will be destroyed. They view it as God is on our side. We are much better than these other guys who are way evil than us. There's no way God is going to punish us and leave them the way they are. We justify things. Yeah? The, the human heart has the capacity to torque and twist and turn anything to its own advantage and excuse anything. And that's what they're doing. Fundamentally, they saw the Egyptians stricken, not them. They were saved by God. If that's the case, why is not God taking them back to Egypt? How do we really know that Moses is hearing him now? Maybe Moses isn't hearing him. You understand? We, we start rationalizing stuff. We sow doubt. Wait a minute. That's not playing out the way we thought. Look at Peter. Look at Peter. He made him. Jesus told him, you're the prime minister. As soon as he did that, he said, I'm going to go and die in Jerusalem. What does Peter do? I'm not going to let you do that. Immediately. Well, Peter thought, he put me in a position of power. I'm in a position of power. I like the position of power. And my position of power is dependent on him staying alive. Now he's saying he's going to die. No way it's going to happen. And Jesus told him, get, get thee behind me, Satan. Your ways are not mine. You think like the world. That's why. Right? When we lack faith, when we lack the love of God, when our heart is tepid, we want our own interest. As long as God is giving us our own interest, we'll follow him. As soon as he doesn't, we grumble. Yeah? Yes. Yes, that's true. And that I completely understand that how we can feel, we, we all feel appalled and, and, and hor- horrified and thinking somebody's going to hell. Right? It's a horrible destiny. I mean, how many of you were here for Father, Father Isaac's uh, four-day four retreat? Okay. I mean, you got the picture, didn't you? Right? So just to, for those of you who weren't there, 
the, according to what we see from the saints, hell isn't a vast place. Hell is a very, very, very <coughs> constricted place. People are piled on top of each other for eternity. You can't move. Okay? So it's horrible. But keep reminding yourself, and I know it takes time, but keep reminding yourself, according to God's justice, we all deserve hell. None of us deserves heaven. We have no right to heaven. Do you understand that? No one deserves heaven. God... No, that's not true. God gave them those signs and said, whoever puts the blood on the lentil of their doors, the, the angel of death will pass over. He didn't say only the Jews. Of course. They've seen Moses. They've seen all the signs. How much more knowledge do you need? Again, God does not owe us salvation. We have to get that in our heads. He does not owe us to save us. Oh, it is hard. Absolutely it's hard. Sin is a hard thing. What you have to meditate on is the sin of Adam and Eve. Because that's where your struggle is. Once you understand how horrible that sin was, much of that will make sense. But if we think that the sin of Adam and Eve was this little thing, after all, I mean, you know, come on. He ate just a piece of, you know, you know what was it, a Fuji apple or something? I mean, what up with God punishing everybody for just one apple, right? We just minimize our sins and then magnifies what we consider to be God's, you know, outlandish behavior. But the truth of the matter is, it's the other way around. Our sins are horrible, beyond recognition. You take the worst monster you see in the most horror movie you can think of, and it's cute compared to a venial sin. It's cute compared to a venial sin. Okay? Because, very good point, uh, very good point. You know, the story is proceeding, suddenly there's this battle, nothing is said about it. The point, again, is that Scripture is not trying to give you all the details. It assumes you know quite a bit. And it's telescoped. The point, here's what they're doing. About food, they grumbled. About water, they grumbled. When they had to defend themselves, they grumbled. They grumbled about everything. That's what the author is trying to do. And look, the Midianite showed up and is praising God. Do you understand? There's a bunch of icons lined up, one after the other, to give somebody who's reading this thoughtfully, to, th- to, think, to, to think, wait a minute, grumble, 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 Jethro is praising God. Hmm, what's wrong with that picture? Yes, yes, he has, because effectively, the event that happens are even out of chronological order. They're not listed in chronological order. These events, the fight with the Amalekites, and even uh, Jethro coming, happens after Sinai, after the laws are given. But they're given here out of chronological order because of the fact of the just juxtaposition. He sort of picked five events that happened, put them one side by side to kind of get somebody to see and understand. Yes. Yes. Yeah. All right? Yes. The, where's the devil right now? No. No. The devil is not everywhere. He is on earth. 
No, 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 no. No, that will happen at the end of time. They are permitted to torment the faithful for a time. So they are here. Okay? That's number one. Number two, um, they are allowed to, as I said, torment the faithful for the purpose of sanctification. Right? So, uh, um, a thousand temptations do not add up to one sin. You understand that? You're saying the rosary. You're praying the rosary. You really want to focus on the joyful mysteries, the infant Jesus, and, you know, the beauty of Christmas. You're saying the rosary. And just as you're saying the rosary, and you've tried to focus on these mysteries, the worst thoughts come to mind. And it hits you from left field, and you don't know what to do with it. And it could be anything. Anything. It could be lustful thoughts. It could be anger thoughts. It could be resentment, regret, things from the past, anxieties. Your husband is dead. Your children disappeared. Everybody disowned you. A loss of this. Anything can hit you from... What are those? Temptations. Temptations. Now, you are perturbed because, especially if it's lustful thoughts, they're hitting you left and right, and you're very much perturbed by them. Right? And they can be so powerful that they can have a physical side to them. Have you committed a sin? Not if you've not given them into them. You haven't. It's just a temptation. So a thousand temptations do not add up to one sin. So who won there? Who won? Did the devil win or did you win? You did. You kicked you know his you know what? By steadfastly saying a rosary, ignoring all of this, and then just keep on praying. Yeah? So everything, back to my point, gives glory to God. Even though the proximate cause is evil. Right? But the end result ends up giving glory to God. Yeah? Yes. Oh, he complains and grumbles, but not to them, but to God. Right? He does. And you will see that later. But the point is that, how does he do that? It is the grace of God taking root in his heart. How do you do that? Through virtue. Remember, he spent 40 years being a shepherd. By himself, silence, contemplation. So therefore, quieting the emotion, focusing on the essential, is what prepared him for this mission. Yeah? We can all do what he did, but our life is very busy here. So if you don't have a moment of silence at your house, you didn't create a space where you can pray, if you're not really focused on all of this, you can't grow in the virtues. If you're not focused on the virtues, if you don't think, okay, what, what, should, what virtues should I be working on and what aspect of those virtues should I be working on, you're not going to progress. You have to take specific steps to do this. Okay? Yes, yes, very good point, excellent. So when he established the judicial system, he didn't go to God and ask, he's okay, because this is a human institution. Precisely. Lay folks and, and lay, later Levites will be involved. But it's a pure lay in, uh, um, um, uh, human institution. And God has no problem with it. Did I answer your question? Yeah. yeah. So God is not about to, he doesn't want us to sort of um, go and get explicit answers from him. He gives us guidelines, he gives us rules. He tells us how we should conduct ourselves, what we should obey and not obey. And then for the rest, he looks for our own um, um, entrepreneurial spirit, if you will, to do what needs to be done. 
And St. Saint uh, Augustine would say, um, and he, he, he had a very lapidary formula, something like this, believe in God and do what you will. And he didn't mean by that, believe in God and go do whatever you want. He meant believe in God, that is, believe in the church, believe in the rules, be virtuous, show that you believe in God, and when you live a life of holiness, you can do what you want because it's going to be holy. That's what he meant. Okay? Yeah. Yes. Oh, so you're trying to do something and you're not able to do it, right? You're not, so it could be completing a task, as you said. Let's take the example of completing a task. The very first thing uh, that you might want to do is take that back, take that as an occasion of a conversation with God. Right? Not, don't take it upon yourself only. Okay, why is that happening to me? How come you're not helping me? What are you trying to tell me? Then, at the same time, do some research. Are you the only one who is unable to complete this task? Let's say, for instance, somebody is trying to, I don't know, climb the stairs and they can't. Right? They, they have a phobia of climbing stairs. I don't know. Just first exam comes to my mind. Right? Well, they need to do some work. Am I the only one? Is there a name for that thing? Where can I get help? What am I? So those are the sort of things that you, you then try to do. You pray, you talk to God, and you try to see what you can do on your own. And it is maybe because through this, God is closing a door, the thing you're trying to do, to open a window that he wants you to go there. And when you take that active role, you're showing him you really trust him. Have I answered your question? Or is something, there's a question behind the question? Yeah, okay, go ahead. I would not say it's a sin. I would say it is less than perfect. It isn't just about not committing a sin. We're trying to do God's will. So it would be better not to go to, to restaurants on Sunday, if at all possible. God said don't work. He didn't say just you. This is a, it's, it's something that he wish all could do, right? So we honor Sunday this way. But it has nothing to do with what they do, they don't do. This is about God's commandment. Prepared on Saturday, if you will. Yes. Okay. Leftover. Right. Right. You need to think about what you're doing when you go to a restaurant on Sunday. Who are you causing to work? So it used to be in this country, in other countries, in, 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 uh, in some other countries, Sunday, you can't find a place open. It's closed. This, did not, this is not the norm. This is abnormal. But we just grown up to use, the, to, use to, to it because we all want La Jolla. So it's convenient. But that's not what God wants for us. That too could be lack of faith. So be attentive to what you're doing. That's essentially the message. right? Don't just do something because the culture tells you to do it. Think it through and then really ask yourself, is that what God wants me to do? That's, that's really important. All right? Yes. Last question. Last question. So here's, here's, the very, here's one way to deal with this business. Of, you're right, the business of lust. Um, St. Teresa of Avila was uh, praying, and she was tormented by lustful thoughts. It lasted for three hours. And in the end, he said, when, when it ended, finally, he said, Lord, where were you? Because God came to talk to her and said, where were you when I needed you? He said, I was with you all the time. And she said, how so? He said, did you enjoy the, the lust or did you suffer from it? She suffered, I suffered greatly from it. And he said, had I not been in your heart, you would not have suffered from it. Because on our own, we don't have that capacity. We're not that good. You understand? But because of his presence in her, she suffered for it and he was pleased 
by her suffering. Okay? God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.